Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am here with Randy Perlman Wolfson. I am so delighted because she and I have been trying to schedule for a while. I had COVID. It's actually the only time I have canceled was on you. And I've been looking forward to meeting you and talking to you about really, honestly, your long trajectory as a griever, the wisdom that you have culled together on your platform, which is Grief and Grits, and hearing about you as an author and you as a mentor to others. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited and really looking forward to this time. Oh, fantastic. So why don't you start? I mean, the question I usually ask folks is just tell us, how did you come into the world of grief and loss? Okay. Well, I like to say I'm a 56 year griever. When I was 10 years old, my dad died. My 41 year old dad, who was a a husband, a dad, a son, a brother, an uncle, and a teacher. He was a fourth, fifth grade school teacher. And he was sick with leukemia for three and a half years. But for myself, even though he had been sick for three and a half years, his death was a sudden death for me. My parents, it was 1966 when he died. And so you can imagine as difficult as it is today to talk about grief, you can imagine what it was like back then. And they decided not to talk about it, not to talk about that he was dying. I think part of that was, you know, he, I think he just, he was young and he was, he had been healthy. He was a gymnast. He was a Mm -hmm. school teacher. You know, he ran a day camp during the summer for kids. And I think that to face the idea that at such a young age, he was dying. And for my mom, who when he died was only 35 years old. So they did not, they told very few people and I was not one of them. And my brother who was four years older than me, he learned a little something, maybe a couple of weeks before my dad died. My mom, I think kind of intimated to him that Mm. my dad was not well. So when my mother came to me on a Saturday morning and said, God needed another teacher in heaven, I had no idea what she was talking about, which is one of the reasons I'm very passionate about the language that we use with children. And there it was, you know, my, my dad was dead. And so of course that changed everything about me and about my life and, And so I'm very passionate about Mm -hmm. talking about children's grief and this very long, long road of what it's like to grieve. And my greatest passion and hope is bringing to people the understanding that when we grieve, we grieve for a lifetime. And it's so important to me for people to understand that to so that they don't feel like what's wrong with me why why is it five years later ten years later and I see something I smell something something reminds me and I fall to my knees and I want people to know that yes that happens but if we're prepared for it we can we can hold it we can deal with it Right. The, the, the concept being just sort of laying out expectations, right? Like all the Buddhist tenets of like, where do we suffer? We suffer when we have too many expectations, but the psycho ed behind something, which is like, no, no, 
grief is a thing you become, not a thing that you do. And, you know, once you become it, you become it. And when you're 10 years old and this happens, it's very out of order. The rest of your 10 year old friends are not developmentally going through that process, but you are then a lifelong griever. Tell me a little bit about how did you go from being a person who did not talk about your dad's death to a person who understood that, you know, it's important to me because I also had early childhood loss, like not to vilify anybody, like times were different. Parents didn't know kids live in systems and think they're normal. You know, they're not looking for clues that their dad is dying. So there's a lot of like, everybody's doing the best they can with the information that we have. And you and I know there's different information. And so we handle these things differently, but I'm curious for you, when did it start to unfold that you understood that that's where the change in terms of how you grieved needed to happen? Yeah, that's a, a wonderful question. And, you know, it's funny. I, the one thing I will say, there were two things my mom did well. One was she took us to the funeral. Mm-hmm. And I'm very aware that, especially again, back in those days, that might've been something that she might have chosen not to do. And I've told this story before. It's, I truly believe it's because of Jackie Kennedy, who just a few years earlier had those two kids stand front and center at that funeral. And my mother really, I think, looked to her as a role model, also a very young widow. And the fact that Jackie Kennedy, you know, did that, I think really gave my mom permission to do Mm. that. And I'm grateful for that. The other thing that even though I don't think my mother had the capacity to really understand, gee, how do I help my children talk about what they're feeling? She never asked us to stop talking about my dad and she would talk about my dad. And so I think that was a real gift because so often you hear, even today you hear family, people say, my family won't talk about my person who died or they've made me put everything away, pictures. I, I'm not supposed, I was, you know, I was told to get rid of everything. So I think those are two things that without any kind of education or knowledge, she intuitively did well. I was kind of a shy kid anyway, to begin with. And so I, I was very aware that I was very different from everybody else. I mean, there weren't even divorces in those days, you know, so there were no families that looked different. And so I think I learned to just be kind of quiet about it because I didn't want to be the little girl Mm -hmm. with the dead dad. And I, it wasn't really until probably in my 20s when I was in graduate school and we were required to start going, you know, to go to therapy. I was becoming a marriage and family therapist, which yep. I'm not anymore. And that's when I think I, I first began to think, oh, there's something here I need to address. And so at that point, I addressed it to the best of my ability at that age. And then again, I think into my thirties, I went through a whole other part of my grief 
yeah. at that age. And I had an amazing therapist and I've actually told the story on my Instagram page, a therapist who said, you, I, I think it's time you go visit your dad's grave. And I hadn't been there for a long, long time. And mm. I, when she said it, I was instantly terrified. She said, you know, I think it will be good for you to go and talk to him. And she said, I will meet you there. <gasps> and I was, I just couldn't even believe it. The day came and it was pouring rain. And I live in Los Angeles. And when it's pouring rain, you know, people freak out. They don't drive. They don't come out. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so I thought, well, of course, she's not going to still meet me there. And I got a call and she said, I'll see you there. And she sat there with me under umbrellas and I spoke to my dad. And at the time I had been having terrible nightmares, reoccurring nightmares. I don't even remember now what they were, mm -hmm. but don't you know that after that experience, the nightmares stopped and I will never forget that woman. And I, I use it you know, as the best explanation of what really good, not therapy is like, but really good grief therapy. Yeah. You know, yeah. somebody who's so willing to be there. Mm -hmm. Well, what I like about that, I'm, I mean, is everything. I love everything about that. But I also like that, you know, you know, because you tra trained it and I trained it and I talk a lot about it on the podcast, sort of the boundaries that we're told have to exist. And, you know, when you're talking about something that's a trauma and when you're particularly when you're talking to an adult who's holding a childhood trauma, part of what happens is your therapist has to sort of hold space for the parent part. Right. And so sitting with you is what doesn't didn't happen in your childhood. Somebody sitting with you while you were trying to process out some feelings yes. and that has to happen at the graveside. And so there's some courage in there on both of your parts to try to do something that's really different and new as a way of, you know, not really necessarily healing, but just moving past or forward, you know, through the energy that you're holding. And I really love that you are highlighting for people. And it's part of the reason I like to have folks who have done, you know, some significant grieving over time is that there's this piece of grief, and then there's another piece of grief Yes. and there's a, and I have to say that, you know, I've specialized in grief and loss for a long time when my mom died and I had trauma from that, I was really surprised to discover all the therapy I had done in my twenties was not enough to stave off the recurrence and sort of the relapse of trauma when she died. I really was. I mean, I just, I don't think I understood that I thought I had kind of inoculated myself. You know, I know all the things and I treat all the things and I've talked about all the things and I'm just like super healthy. I don't know that I was walking around like, oh, therefore nothing bad is going to knock me. I just was really surprised yeah. to discover that there was a whole nother piece that really wouldn't have shown up until she died. It didn't happen when my dad died. It only showed up when she died because of the way that we had been attached to each other. Yeah. It was fascinating to me. And I also had some therapists who were willing to, I, I write about this in my book, but I had a, sort of like a panic attack at one, at one place and the treatment providers that I were, was with came up with this treatment plan that sounded very similar 
to a mom sitting on a bench, watching a kid play at a playground. Mm. They brought me back to the place where I had had this overwhelming sense of panic that I couldn't explain. I mean, this is only a couple of years ago. And she said, you go do what you need to do. I'll sit here with a book. And I know, I know. I mean, it was really transformative because what it said, which I think is the message that you and I both talk about on our platform is I know you need to do this yourself. You need to climb, you know, and reach the monkey bars yourself. The monkey bars of grief. I can't get you there. You got to do it, but I'll sit here, make sure you don't get hurt. And I'll encourage you and believe you can do it. Yeah. I I mean, absolutely. I believe that. I, I often say grief needs a voice and yeah. it needs somebody there to hold you. Yeah. And sometimes it's a therapist. Sometimes it's a dear friend. Sometimes it's an Instagram page that, right. that you read over and over and you find something that resonates, whatever it is, you have to feel held somehow and that's heard somehow. That's right. I, I joke about this a lot, but that's why everybody needs to have their Instagram page and their podcast and their memoir and their book and their platform, because we're behind, we're really behind yes. in what we now know is the case, which is people are not educated in grief and loss, even though they could be, there's plenty of stuff that we could, you know, just add as a curriculum and they're kind of kept away. So they don't get core education. And also people are like, don't look over there. That's like private information. We don't want to. So they don't have the passive knowledge because we, even though we know that's not what should be happening, it's still kind of what we do. I, I, I think it just ties back to the fact that grief is about death. Yeah. You know, and I think that death is just still so darn scary to face and talk about. And so people run from grievers, you know, the griever, you know, it's, they're scary to be around. <laughs> you know, I, so I have two thoughts about that. One is that I had this brilliant palliative care therapist, Catherine Mannix on the podcast a long time ago. And she talked about how grief just used to be, in, you know, death used to be in the home. And so we didn't shield. It was part of an experience. And so people, yes had to talk about it. They communicated more, they connected more, they helped each other more. It was just less isolative. And I think about that a lot. I think about, you know, if you have a sister who dies in childbirth in your house, your kids are going to see that there's no, you know, you, you can't inoculate in the same way. The second thing that I've been thinking, and I've been thinking about this lately, I'm curious. I, I wanted to ask you about this because I think it really roots to, you know, a death, whether it's sudden or not, is a trauma. If it goes unsupported at certain developmental stages, anything under 10, you run the risk of the child's feelings becoming who they are because they don't really have the intellectual capacity to pull them apart. It's not, it's like, if I feel bad, I am bad. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens a lot. And what I'm curious about, Simon Cooper from the Financial Times was on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we taught, he shared a story about a friend of his who went to a grief and loss group. And he sort of anecdotally was like, yeah, and it wasn't good. And so I asked him about it. What do you mean it wasn't good? And he said, well, there was one person in there who really was not well and was really pulling the rest of the people in the group down. And I said, do you want to know what that is? Like, I know what that is. And what that is, is someone who is not 
just processing a loss, which we're wired to do. That's someone who has trauma. Yes. And just on top of it. And I'm curious about your thoughts on this because I know that because I'm a trauma therapist, I know what trauma sounds like and what it feels like. And when I think about, when I see that page in everybody's grief and loss book that says, don't do these things. My first thought is why is anyone doing those things to begin with? Why is that the instinct? And I am wondering if people out there in the world have actually had more experience with people who are traumatized, meaning they are stuck in neutral with grief than we think they have. Mm. That their neighbor whose husband died didn't leave the house for seven years, which is a traumatized grief and loss. That is not the average, which is like a couple months later, we saw her out. She was teary. So I'm just curious about that. Like, do you consider yourself traumatized, meaning created meaning from the death, had struggles that then you needed treatment and support to get over? Or do you feel like this bad thing happened and I moved my way forward without lots of destruction? Does that question make sense? Yeah. I, well, I, I do think I made my way forward and I, it's funny. I've written, I, I just, I think I just posted something about that. In fact, about, you know, I think that's probably why I wanted to ask you about it. (laughs) Maybe that's why, because I think that, I think I say something in that post about, you know, that I, I was, we're wired. I think as children, we're wired to grow up, right? That's That's what we're supposed to do. And so I think at the age of 10, you know, experiencing this death, I'm still wired to keep moving, to keep growing. Um, And I think that is why that people always say, oh, children are so resilient. Right. And they stop right there. And I think that is the problem. Of course, children are resilient. They do keep going because they're wired to keep going. But that doesn't mean that they aren't grieving and that they aren't having all kinds of great big feelings that need to be talked about and tended to and in their body and you know all of that kind of thing so i do i think for me and i I know what you're talking about in terms of the difference between trauma and grief because i i facilitated grief support groups for 13 years you know exactly what i'm talking about I know exactly what you're talking about because our, our groups were actually run by volunteers who were trained by us on the clinical staff. So, you know, we had to make sure each person who entered a group was not experiencing so much trauma that they couldn't be there in a way that would be supportive for everybody in the group and not have an experience like this one that you just spoke about. When somebody's experiencing so much trauma, they they can't get to the grief part. For for example, if you're experiencing so much fear and startle reflex, you you hear a sound and you feel so much fear in your body and all you can see in your mind's eye is those last moments of death or what have you. You can't sit in a group and talk about right. 
oh, you know, my husband and I, or my partner and I, or my child and I, we did this together. And I remember that, and I'm missing this and I'm missing that. You can't, you can't get to that grief part if the trauma is still so present. And that's such a good point. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I yeah, love no, that's okay. you just framed it. And I'm learning from you in this minute because the grief part, right? Like noun or verb of it is an energy that we're moving through, right? I always think of it as like a watermelon that you're holding and, but you, you can turn it into a margarita. You can turn it into a lotion. It doesn't have to be this giant heaviness that you're holding just in your arms. So there is an aspect in what you're describing, which is that person is not even at that. They're just in the pain of continual reenactment of the destruction. Right. And, uh, and so the, the actual act of grieving is not what they're doing there in that grief group. I monitor a lot of boards also. And, you know, every once in a while, these people who all came here to, I'll, I'll pick up in the middle of the thread and everybody's talking about somebody who said something who bit, basically they bit on the board, they bit somebody else. And I think, I, I think the reason I want to talk a little bit about it is that there's this fear about, I don't know how to help that person. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to. And I think what you're describing is there's acute pain. Yeah. Right. And the acute pain does not last as long, although it can last longer than people expect, but there's the acute fresh grief. Yeah. And pretty much everything everyone does hurts in fresh grief. I mean, even people who are just like, I'm going to my father's birthday party. I'd be like, fuck you. You didn't even do anything. They just like, sent a text. So, so fresh grief, I, I've described it as like being an M&M without like the hard candy shell. Like you're just like melting into your pain all the time. Yeah. But there is also the work of grieving, which is nobody wants this. We weren't expecting it. However you get it, nobody wanted it, but it's yours. And how are you going to come into holding it? And for some people, I think they got to talk. They might need to go to therapy. They might need to join a grief group. I think there is the verbing, the action of grief that can also be really private and individual. Absolutely. So that the, the sort of moving forward, I, you know, as a therapist, it's really important for me to say to people, like, I don't think everybody needs therapy. I think generally people need more support than they admit yeah. or think they should get. And I think people are much more loving than they are able to love into action around you than you're able to receive because there is this awkwardness that we're still trying to like figure out and move forward from. If, if you were gonna give a, like a nugget to somebody who was going to be with childhood grievers, what's your favorite sort of advice or support to give someone who has to be with a child who's grieving? Well, I think the most important thing is understanding that grief work is not just saying to a child, how are you feeling? Yeah. Because we all know we were all children. We all, you know, know what it's like to be asked, how are you feeling? And usually from a child, you're going to get, I'm fine. Yeah. So we have to find other ways to get in there, right? To what is going on. So it's really important to remember that grief work is helping someone talk about their person who died, talking about 
the memories and talking about the future as well. You know, something that we forget to ask grievers, children and otherwise, which I think are called adults. Sure. Is, you know, what do you imagine it would have been like if your dad had been at your graduation? Mm. Or if your dad was going to be at that, you know, playoff game, or if your, you know, if your big brother who died, you know, Mm. would have been with you at your 16th birthday, you know, so that's grief work too. And asking even just things like, what was your favorite thing to do together? And that can be a wonderful way to get children to talk. They're not going to easily talk when you just say how are you doing how are you feeling so we have to find other ways around that to help them talk and process their grief you've mentioned this a couple of times you mentioned it with your therapist taking you to the gravesite but also with the with the kids right there so i just want to like highlight it which is there's a lot of modern grief theory thank goodness which takes us past the five stages of grief which i'm not even going to mention and One of them is about continuing bonds, right? This idea that we have a relationship with the memory of our person forever and ever. And one thing that I know from my work is that particularly if somebody had the experience in childhood is that you can't assume that a person has a present day relationship with someone that they had die that that is not intellectually a place that everyone goes. My mom was very, very religious. And so, you know, I think was talking to angels and relatives in heaven forever. She had no problem after my dad died talking to him right away. Wow. I went to a grief retreat and the therapist after, I don't know what I was talking about, but I went because I thought I, I thought it would be good for me, not because I was having terrible symptoms And she said to me, here's one thing that I've noticed. You only talk about the month of your dad dying, which was excruciating because he died of small cell cancer. And so he got sicker and sicker and sicker and died. And she said, I'm just curious if you have any current memories of him healthy. And I did not. I was only ever tapping back to the memory of his death. And she was like, well, you know, maybe we could just actively try to think about him healthy. And so then we used memory and we used imagination and it just felt like stretching out on a couch. Like, you know, he was 80 when he died. He spent one year dying. I knew him for all 43 of my years. Right. Right. And I think being able to model that for Kit, what would he do? What do you think your dad would do if he was here today? You're really helping them understand that we're not going to just stay in the energy of loss. There's more to be mined here. Yeah. And I, I think it's actually important to really highlight that concretely with adults, because if you don't have like a mystical prayer life, talking to things that aren't there or thinking of them in the present day is not actually intellectually a, a straight math problem. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Do you have a present day relationship with your dad now? Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, I I was thinking earlier about, you know, signs, of course. Yeah. People talk a lot about signs. And yeah. I will say that in my entire life, I never got one sign, not one, mm. for over 50 years. 
And mm. I, I would love to have, I just never did. Yeah. And when I started writing Grief and Grits, my dad was 41 when he died. Yeah. And just a couple years ago, I started Grief and Grits about four and a half years ago. And a few years ago, I started all of a sudden to see the number 41. I would see, oh, there's 41 comments or there's 41 likes on a post. And I would look at those posts like just at that moment. And of course, like a few minutes later, I might have 43 likes. But I all suddenly I was seeing 41 everywhere. I would see 41. My battery would be at 41% or the time was 1041. And I thought, this, this is crazy. And I have two good friends who we talk all the time. We used to work together in the field of grief and we, we all left our job at the same time and we still talk all the time. And now all of a sudden, they see 41. Have it. <laughs> same thing. Their battery is at 41. That. The clock is at 41. They see 41 on a post or something. And we're laughing now saying, you know, my dad is just up our asses. <laughs> I, first of all, I love everything about this. I love the honesty of like, yeah, no, I work in the world of grief and loss and I don't get any signs. I, I just love that. Right. Because I think the mysticism is something that we all would like yearn for. So I just love the bluntness of like, yeah, no. And I love that you suddenly have them, which reminds us, you know, I've been talking for a while saying to people, listen, when I started this podcast, I was not really open to woo woo stuff. I was like, give me the neuroscience behind it. Show me where it is, you know, where the data is. Otherwise I don't want to, and I am, I am 180 on the other side of that right now. And what's funny about that is that my entire experience of my mother's death was completely woo woo. Like I had this sensation in my body that let me know that she died. And then, and the day of her funeral was this crazy experience involving clouds and birds. And then the day after her funeral, there was a butterfly. I mean, if you put it in a movie that people would be like, you got to cut one of these scenes. It does. It's too much. But I came away from that experience with so much trauma that I was like, no, I, I don't, there's no signs. No. And I started going through my journals and, you know, looking mostly actually through photographs. Cause I took pictures of all these things as they happened. Cause that's what you can do when you have a phone. Yes. And I was like, what is the narrative? What is the narrative that I have created here? And what data is that coming from? Because if anyone was going to be like, suddenly, I don't know, getting a crystal ball, I feel like I've had 112 invitations. And honestly, that's more the you know, I work with an intuitive healer right now, and I just can't believe the kind of energy that I have more access to, but I'm so interested in the narratives that we need to have at different times around what our loss is and what it feels like, right? The story that we tell ourselves, And I think a lot of us talk about what the meaning is, you know, and I think people right. who are still in fresh grief are like, don't tell me about your fucking meaning. Like I just, this person just died. I don't want to hear that. Like yours amplified your life. But what I love about what you're telling us is like, yeah, guess what? The longer you live with it, the more it gets to change. I mean, that is just yeah. an incredible story. I, I mean, I couldn't even tell you 
what it means, what the connection is, you know, I think, okay, maybe now after 56 years, he, he wants to say hello. I don't know. I don't dream about him. And I feel sad about that. Yeah. I, I, you know, after those nightmares stopped and I, that's now like 30 years ago, Yeah, I don't recall having a dream about him. And I would love to, and you know, so many people yeah. talk about you know, that they dream and that's a double-edged sword, of course, for some people, it's very frightening and yeah, absolutely, and it can be very jarring for some people. It's very comforting. I would love to see him in a dream. I think, you know, have him, you know, don't forget because it was 1966 when my dad died, there were no videos. The There's no voice. I did finally come across some old home movies. So I have some home movies where I can see him and see him moving, but there's no voice. And that's sad. You know, it's so sad. I, I, I wish I had, and I don't remember his voice. Yeah. And um, so I do, I miss that, you know, I miss being able to have, you know, real life video and, and voice. Yeah. Yeah. I did a little Instagram live and you're reminding me I should do it again to show people how to save their voice memos and their, you know, voicemails into your, into your email so that you don't lose them because the number of people that I know that have lost photos or lost and you know, you just don't, but, but you're bringing up such a really important point, which is that when someone dies, we really do have like a limited number of artifacts with which to touch back and sort of anchor our experience with them. And I think so many people have said this to me, one of the most touching things is when people give you their pictures, Mm -hmm. you know, pull them out of their photo albums or forward them to you, but just, you know, you didn't take this picture. You've never seen it before. Maybe you saw it, but it's not yours. And to be able to sort of flood somebody with, in case you don't have this, but when it's, you know, before the technology existed, then we, there, there are points at which where we just have to hold and face what we hold in face. So, and dreams are fascinating. They, Dr. Joshua Black was on my podcast a while ago and talked about them. And I ended up crying on the podcast, which I mean, I don't want crying. I just, it took me totally by surprise because I did talk to him a little bit about, I had one, I had nightmares after my dad died, really terrible nightmares. And then they just stopped. And I had a goodbye dream, a dream where I said goodbye to him. And with my mom, I had two dreams. I've only had two dreams that she was in. Although I think I may have had a third because I was sobbing in my sleep and my husband woke me up and I was like, I think my mom is, but I don't remember that one. But my daughter recently has been dreaming of my mom and she'll come in and be like, Nana was in my dream. I'm like, sit down and tell me everything. My friend, Susan calls those visits. And I just love that idea. Yeah. I know. I love the idea. Feel like those are visits. I know. know. I mean, you know, again, six months ago when I was not in the same space that I'm in now, which by the way, I would say this is just part of the trajectory of what it feels like to loosen away from the trauma of the loss and, you know, move more into carrying it. I have more, I think, intellectual curiosity and more access to the spiritual part of my brain. But I, you know, I really, 
hated when people would say to me like, oh, I was talking to your mom in heaven or I saw, you know, a blackbird. I thought it was her. I really was like, fuck off. That makes you feel better. It makes me feel worse. Why is she visiting you and not visiting me? That's right. That's right. That really infuriated me. And also when I was right, when I've been writing the book, you know, people, again, this is a very generous thing. They're like, oh, your mother would be so proud. And I mean, my best friend is funny about it. Cause she was like, Oh, she would forbid you. You know, my mother was very private. The story I try to tell, and you said something like this too, is my story. I'm very careful to try to talk about me and my experience, but you know, I do talk about my mom and her, her totally funny sense of humor right. and her way she was tough. And, you know, I tell the truth and she would not like that. She would not. So when people are like, oh, your mom would be so proud. I'm like, you do not know my mother. This might, she might not speak to me for three years after this. My dad would be proud. My mom, she'd be pissed. So the, the idea of kind of like, how do we access them and what do we have? How do we feel about them? I think there's the obvious piece, which is like, you're going to have pain at different times forever, but also this other piece, which is you're going to feel connected mm-hmm. at different times forever. Yes. Yeah. Which is really beautiful. Can you tell us a little bit about your children's book? I would love to. Ah. Um, So my children's book is Eddie's Brave Journey, How One Little Elephant Learned All About Grief. It's meant for, I like to say, the littlest of grievers, three to eight technically. But I really believe that when people first put a child in their lap and start showing them books that that it's a wonderful book to do that with because it's it's beautifully illustrated it's filled with different animals and so there's so much to you know help a one-year-old even start to you know look at the the pictures the illustrations and begin to use these words and use this language and that's something that we aren't comfortable enough doing in our culture and in our society is talking about death when we can before it actually happens. And, and I like to say that the book is really for, you know, zero to 99. I still cry every time I read it. And most adults, you know, who read it are very touched by it. Um, Because I think it really, it just addresses all the different things that that we really need to address when we're grieving. And so this little elephant, Eddie, whose grandpa Joe has died, is having all kinds of big feelings and wants to find out what should he do. And so he goes through his neighborhood and meets other animals who help him with very specific things. He has a best friend named Solly Squirrel, who is actually named for my dad, who was Sol. His nickname was Solly. And Solly Squirrel in the book is Eddie's best friend. He's like a teacher. He actually interacts with the reader. So Solly Squirrel is placed in very specific pages to ask certain questions of the reader. So, and each animal answers, you know, very specific question that Eddie has. I use what I like to call real language. I say died. I explain what that means that the body stops working because I am a very firm believer that with it, that especially with children but adults as well to use the real language it's very important because it's very confusing for children as much as we think we're helping them by using euphemisms and we lost your dad and you know she went to sleep or they passed 
children don't understand what those things mean. They hear lost and they think, well, let's go find him. So my, my first degree is in child development. And I just walked, you know, I was meant to be a teacher. That's what I intended on doing and didn't head that route officially. And I'm always stunned by how much of what I learned then really informs what trauma work is about. But one of the things that I, that I think is important when we're talking about children and grieving is to understand that sort of like developmental phases mean that they do not have the capacity to come up with logical cognitions and they will do what children do, which is come up with magical ideas. And it is stunning to me to talk to somebody who is 53 years old that will tell me something. And I'm like, wait, what? And then they're like, wait, what? What I just said doesn't make any sense, right? And then they have to unwind it of like, oh, this is a child's idea that's never been updated. And the danger is that if a child doesn't understand something, you don't know that they're going to come up with something that is a good and healthy response. The example that I use when there was a drowning and that was my childhood trauma, my mother immediately, which was a good resource for her, had to say the rosary, but I was eight and I didn't know the rosary. And so I didn't know why we were saying the rosary because I understood he had already died. I didn't understand why we were praying, except maybe we were going to keep him alive. And then when I didn't know the rosary, I thought it must be my fault. Cause like, I don't know, witches and codes and all kinds of, I mean, I lived with, it was probably my fault for, for a very long time. And when I was the trauma that I experienced after my mom died was that the thought that, you know, the, the rumination was that it was my fault. She died. Yeah. So there's the legacy of trauma goes unhealed is that you carry it in these ways that are very, very subtle and hard to see. Absolutely. And I wouldn't have even known how to say to my mother, did I make that? Did I cause this? Yeah. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have wanted to ask, but so to be able to have some kind of communication so that you can understand what a child misinterprets. And the example that I use is anyone who ever walked in on their parents having sex when they were a child thought something (laughs) terrible was going on. And it doesn't take much to say to a kid this is like a grown-up thing that doesn't make any sense to you, like coffee. You don't like coffee, but someday you might. And what was going on is about grown-up bodies. Yeah. So it looked like something terrible, but it wasn't. Right. It was, it's something that grown-ups like. Like kids don't need a whole lot more than that. They but if you, a whole lot. Yeah. if you don't talk to them about it, who knows what they're going to decide was going on in there. Yeah, exactly. Who knows what they are going to, because they don't have the intellect and they don't have the experience. And I'm so happy now to learn that sex and coffee are the same. They're the same. (laughs) Totally easy. Well, because kids find that what they see really repellent and scary and, you know, kid, most kids have some idea that coffee is, why do grownups drink that? That's completely disgusting. That's right. When the year before my dad died, my son who was going into kindergarten was going into first grade. He was in kindergarten, had a friend who had had cancer that was not expected to kill him. He died of cancer. It was really sudden and very unexpected and terrible, terrible, terrible. So it happened over the summer and the school really wanted to like move forward. I called and said, Hey, I just want to check in. You know, my son was one of 
the little boy who died, he was one of his like little posse. And I just, and she said, yeah, you know, I walked into the glass room and everybody seemed fine. So we're just going to like move forward. And I said, if what you mean is you are waiting for my 100% compliant son to act out in some way to indicate to you that he has crazy ass feelings going on about being in the school. And there was another little boy who looked like his friend who died in the school. That's never going to happen. And I can only do so much at home. He's not having these feelings at home. So he and I ended up having to talk about it, even though he was six, you know, we ended up coming up with a plan for his feelings and talk. I would come home and I still, I still use and I give it to my clients and people love it. I had an actress on Alicia Reiner and she was like, oh my God, I'm going to use this. All I would say to him at the end of the day was, how are your feelings? How are you feelings today? You don't even have to tell me about them. How were they? Were they crunchy? Were they hot? Oh. Were they sad? Were they, or, and this is what I say to my 14 year old now, any feelings I should know about? And I don't say you have to talk to me about them. Just like, can you pin them up on the board so they know that they exist? Yeah, I love that. And it were, it just, you know, when my, when my mom died, my husband was like, any feelings I should know about, you know, each night to just sort of check it in. Like, like, do we need milk? You know, that's so wonderful. An inventory. And I just think about how my son sort of taught me that and how you don't have to read a book about how to perfectly communicate with your kid. Although you could, there are a million books out there now. There are millions, you know, children's books, like your beautiful book that will give us much better guidance. But the reality is just being able to open a conversation where you are not awkward and say to a child, this person died. This is what happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In so- fact, when, when my dad was sick, we went up to visit him on his 80th birthday. He died 11 days later and we went up to visit him and, and we were giving him a break. So I took the kids out to pizza and my same son, the guy who had experienced his friend's death, he was like eating a piece of pizza. And he was like, so Papa's really sick, huh? He looks like he's probably going to die. Is he going to die? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I think the cancer is definitely going to kill him. And he was like, yeah, that's what it looks like. Yeah. It, I mean, it's really, truly amazing how wonderful kids respond when they're spoken to honestly, you know, and if they're not spoken to honestly, they're going to either hear it somewhere else on a schoolyard, they'll see it on a computer, yeah. they'll overhear a conversation, and then they can make up all kinds of wild things in their head. So it's really important that they hear these things from the people that they love and they trust and words that are just real, that aren't confusing. You know, I, I've seen, you know, you know, there's, there are a lot of children's grief books out there. Thank Amazingly. Good. And so many of them are really wonderful with the language yeah. that they use. Yeah. And then there are so many that don't even ever say that a person died. And I don't understand that. And so that's just something that I take a lot of pride in, in my book. And I am very aware that for some people that won't be fitting because they don't want to use real language. I also don't talk about religion specifically because I feel that's a very individual thing that people need to be able to, you know, bring in their own beliefs. So I've left that open as well. So I don't say somebody's gone to heaven or anything about that because that has to be 
you know, a belief that a family brings into. Uh, but I think also the, the tendency, right? It's, it's, if you, if you jump in and say, grandpa went to heaven, you're taking the kid out of the feeling, right. And trying to fix it for them. Like, oh, well that, you know, don't worry. There's better somewhere place. Better. Yeah. <laughs> Which also, I mean, it's so insulting to people. Cause like, why would he want it? Why would grandpa want to be somewhere that I am not? But also it's really, it's almost like disrespectful to kids. Like let them be where they're at and then let them ask what they need to ask. So, you know, again, we don't have like a religious structure that we follow in this household, even though I've studied and, and been exposed to lots of things. And I, you know, try to have those conversations with my kids. But one of them, when my mom died was like, do you think she's in heaven? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't think there's a heaven, bud. I really wish I could, but what do you think? What do you think? He was and like, I do. If, if you believe that, what do you think it looks like? Let's draw right. a picture. Let them talk about it. You know, it's really important. But it's also just a, what, it, you know, you tell me what makes you feel better. You tell me what your practice of thinking is. So I want to ask you that because you have so much time in, you have grown this part of you for such a long time. Were there practices like writing, running, cooking, singing that you, that you used as a child that you go back and look at? Are there practices now, rituals now that you employer, do you find that it's just sort of integrated and when you need to rely on something you do and otherwise you don't need to pay, you don't need to water that garden very much? Yeah, I I think it really truly is sort of integrated into the person that I've become. I think, let's see, in about 2005, I decided that I specifically wanted to get involved in working with grievers. And I did just that. And it was like finding my home, truthfully, Mm -hmm. and spent about 13 years doing that, where I I supervised volunteers, I trained people, I Mm -hmm. educated teachers and therapists and clergy and medical students and all about grief and then facilitated grief support groups with both children and adults. And so it was truly a work of my heart. Yeah. I left that position about four and a half years ago. I thought, you know, I, I have so much experience with grief, both as a griever, having worked with so many grieving people for you know, 13 years, I thought, you know, what am I, what am I going to do with all of that? Go somewhere. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll just try a Facebook page. And it was August. And I thought, okay, if by December, maybe 50 people come along and something resonates for 50 people, I will keep going. And people started, you know, coming along and, Mm -hmm. So it's just continued to grow. And then I got on Instagram and, and they're kind of really different communities. It's interesting. I agree. Yeah. I yeah. Agree. What's happened on Instagram is connecting with all the other people that are writing about grief. That's right. On Facebook, I feel like it's more about people coming to learn more about grief for themselves. They're not necessarily writing their own grief pages. 
Whereas on Instagram, it's more about the connection with. I have a big age difference in my, in my Facebook page, Mm -hmm. which is predominantly connected to my blog, which has been a little bit quiet while I've been writing the memoir. I find that it's people who are older and, and, and are maybe a little bit savvier. And, and in the, in my Instagram, I just noticed that it, there are younger voices and there are some young voices doing incredible work with, which I'm so, you know, they're just covering all the topics and they've got big followers and people really care and they're out there. And it's, you know, I think there's room for all of the things because I think it's important to have folks who are out there saying, this is the way that I feel. And I want to share that. And I want to tell the truth. And I feel like that's a, you know, a more recent thing that we do with writing and talking and, you know, you're, sharing your private feelings public. I, I think that's amazing. And I think what you're describing, which is sort of the history and the education and knowing some of the theory and having, there's also, we need all that. And so I just, you know, I, I, I like both platforms. I feel very much in service to the message. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of like nothing I won't try. Like, okay, you, you know, right now I do a lot of corporate disc, you know, I have a lot of conversations with corporate leadership folks, and I have done some intensives with people who it's not really an option for them to spend like I did six months in their feelings because they have, you know, 20,000 people who are depending on them to keep a company. And so I've been doing, you know, intensive kind of trauma stuff, but I didn't go looking for that work. That work came knocking on my door. And, and, and my immediate reaction was, I don't want to do this. And then I sat with it and was like, yeah, but it needs to get done. These people are asking because they need, so I got to go try it. And I've been surprised that I love it. I I really do understand that the stronger my reaction to something, if it's a negative, strong reaction, the likelihood is coming back for me. We're not done here. We haven't finished. You guys can't see Randy's really nodding. What would you like to grow into in this role that you're in right now, where you are mentoring and advocating and writing and talking, what are, what's of interest for you right now? Well, my, my big thing that I am just beginning and it's actually going to be starting. I have always wanted to provide space for adults who experienced a death as a child Mm -hmm. to talk about it. And a few weeks ago, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to put it out there and see if anybody responds. And so I did. I put it out there. Is there anybody out there, you know, an adult who's experienced uh, a a death as a child that would like the opportunity to do an Instagram live? I don't want them to be too long. I want them to be about 30 minutes because I think sometimes that's about all people can tolerate on Instagram live. I have some specific questions that I'm hoping to address because I think they will be helpful for the person and for others listening to hear the answers to. And so I'm really excited. We're, I'm, you know, the first one is this Friday and we'll see how it goes. But I actually had quite a few people respond. And so I've got a little like waiting list created and we'll see how it goes. You know, it could be wonderful. It could be a disaster, but we'll see. What I really love about this community, because it's, you know, it's, it's like an artist community, which is, you know, somebody works in crayon, another person works in wax. You could Mm -hmm. both be looking at trees that what you're describing doesn't sound like anything I've heard before. I don't know anybody else that's doing that. It came from your ideas and your passion and your experience. 
And so what's exciting about that to me is, you know, you're going to fill a little crack in there that needs to be filled in with your unique interest and passion. And I mean, that's great in all the worlds, but when we're talking about grief and loss, which again, it's, I feel like we're 175 years behind, there are lots of other things that we do better that are also developmental and important and happen to everyone, but grief and loss, we just, you know, we're trying, but we're a lot of little voices, but I'm so grateful for this idea. And I can't wait to hear what you discover from it, because I will tell you, I knew a lot of things when I came into podcasting and I certainly know a lot of things about trauma because I've been in this world for 20 years. I've learned some really core things. And, and even just that example that the understanding that there are traumatized people in loss who are maybe setting a tone that's larger than their actual percentage. And that Im- impacts how people feel about what they're, that's the, you know, that's a new concept to me that I'm just sort of formulating. So I will absolutely be watching your Instagrams. I can't wait to see the conversation that you have. And I'm sure because you're so fired up and passionate about it, that it's going to have an impact, not only on the people that you're talking to, but the people who are participating on it. Yeah. I, I think it's amazing. Yeah, I'm excited about it. My hope is that it will help other adults who have really never had the opportunity to talk about it, to know that it's okay to talk about it. Because I'm sure that there are many who have just pushed down, you know, those, all of those feelings. And so- Well, and one of the things that you and I know is that it's never too late to heal and that we're exactly. wired for healing and that, That's you know, right. transformation and change can happen when you're 99 years old. And that is not, I'm not saying that facetiously actually know that to be true. Yes, I know it from like a neuroscience perspective, but I also know it from experience. So I'm just, I'm, I think this is going to be amazing. And, and you said you already have a waiting list of people who want to be on. If people are interested in interacting with your platform, getting your children's book, you know, asking to be part of your presentation on your Instagram lives on Friday, how do they do that? What's the best way? So come on over to Grief and Grits is my platform on both Instagram and Facebook. And if somebody is, you know, interested, you know, just direct message me. She's Um, a very good messenger. We message each other regularly. I'll tell you the answer. And I I think I'm pretty good about getting back to people. So, but yeah, just come on over to Grief and Grits. My book, Eddie's Brave Journey can be found at ediesbravejourney.com. And I just, you know, I hope people will come by. I, you know, I don't get anything out of this, honestly, other than. No, listen, grief is not like a giant moneymaker. You know, we're not. No, it's just really for me, like I said earlier, you know, it's just work of my heart. It's writing of my heart. If, if one person is able to understand their own heart in a little bit different and more compassionate way and understand a a griever in a, in a different and new way, then, you know, I could not be happier and more. I will link in the show notes for anyone who's listening, all of Randy's material so that you can click on it and it will just be in an easy place, but also they can come over to Instagram and just search you up. You have been a complete delight. I have been looking forward to this for quite some time. We'll keep fangirling each other on each other's platforms. And thank you so much. Thank you. What a joy it's been spending this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I hope we, we, I know we'll stay connected, but I hope at some point we get to do some more work together. I hope so. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Bye.